Hello, and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is Jim. Uh, a bit of a special episode. I guess they're all pretty special, and they're all <laughs> on a theme. That's right. There's Teal chiming in, uh, ladies and gentlemen. And, uh, you know, we're going to be focusing on one one man, one director, Steven Spielberg. He, the uh, most famous director of all time throughout the world. I don't know if that's true, but he probably one of the most, um, probably because of things like Jurassic Park. Yes, that's what, that's what I mean. I mean, he's his name is a global brand because of things like Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jurassic Park. These, you know, are massive global movies. And his name is, you know, a lot of a lot of people see movies and don't necessarily know who the director is, but Spielberg is a brand. This is true. Um, and we're going to actually get into a little bit about that, about, you know, from our own childhood. Yeah. This was a guy that was probably one of the first directors where we knew his name. Famous or not, he's not immune to the realities of today's cinema-going world where unless it is a superhero movie of some sort or a big action film like the new Avatar coming out, uh, people aren't going to see the movies. And uh, so he's got his latest film out, probably his most personal work, The Fablemans, and it is is the complete opposite of a box office success. Uh, by and large, people aren't seeing it. And Universal Studios really put no marketing behind it, probably sensing there was going to be no audience for it. Not because it's not a good movie or something. It's just that literally people aren't seeing these types of films anymore. And so they've kind of now dumped it uh, after kind of still probably playing in some theaters, but it was very hard for me to find. I had to drive, I don't even want to say how long to go see it. I saw it in the theater. It came out on VOD yesterday. Uh, that allowed Teal to see it. And uh, we're going to kind of start our Spielberg uh, kind of episode, which we're probably going to be doing two episodes here on that, but we're going to start at the end with the Fablemans first before we step into the Spielbachtagon. Well, and I feel like Fablemans is the end, uh, well, because it's the most recent, but it's also kind of the beginning because of the material it covers. And I, over the last week, chipped away at the Spielberg documentary. Ah, I've seen that, yes. Yeah, and you've seen it. Uh, so I sort of chipped away at that. And so it was interesting to have that sort of simultaneously with Fablemans and sort of get a sense of his coming of age through the movies and uh, who he is as a filmmaker and a person and the impact these childhood experiences had on him. Uh, before we're going to begin, there's a certain way we're going to be doing this. Um, you know, we're going to go through the entire filmography of Spielberg, and it's kind of a little bit of a game where uh, I've always been a fan of Spielberg, even though I don't like all of his movies, and I feel like his second half of his career hasn't been as strong as his first half, but Teal has a much <laughs> less of an enthusiastic opinion overall of Spielberg. He has a lot of problems with him. So what we're going to do, since I had seen every single one of his movies, um, the only one I hadn't seen was the BFG, but I've seen it now in time for this program. And I've seen almost every one of his films in the theater, uh, no yeah. less. Uh, Teal has missed some, but he's gone back to the filmography. I think he may have completed it. We're not sure. But uh, so we were going to start at the very beginning, but since the Fablemans he just saw and I just recently saw, we thought we'd start there. And I think this is why it's a great place to start, because we don't have guests on the show very often. But when we have, Teal 
you'll ask a very interesting question mm-hmm. to the um, the guest, and that's, what was the first real film experience in a theater that they can remember? Yeah. Um, and that always gets some interesting reactions. And that's a, a kind of been a theme for us throughout these years. Doing it has, show, yeah. Is the film experience and what the impact of seeing some of these movies in the theater had on us as kids. And so when I went in to see this Fableman's movie, I didn't really know much about what I was going to get other than, I, you know, the, the bad trailer, which it kind of uh, made it look like it was going to be a love letter to Spielberg and that he was congratulating himself or something. It, 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 terrible <laughs> marketing on this movie. I mean, it's oh, yeah. not just that they didn't market it. It's that they marketed it poorly. And it's the worst poster I've ever seen for a movie. It's a terrible poster. And the trailer just doesn't get at what the movie is about at all. And I mean, I I, want to correct you, though. People did see everything everywhere all at once. They did. And I think, though, that became a film where critics were praising it from the beginning and then audiences would see it. And it was like one of these things where it doesn't seem to happen that often these days, but people were telling people. Like when I saw everything, I told a lot of people, you need to see this thing and go see it in a theater if you can. Yeah. And so it doesn't happen a lot, but yet even with the Fablemans, I've been telling people to see it and I know people are seeing it. But again, when you have such poor marketing and it kind of this shrugging your shoulders, giving up on it attitude. Yeah. uh, It's fate was sealed on the way that they released it. And they, they didn't give up on everything everywhere all at once. They, they just rode out the word of mouth in a smaller number of theaters. And that's a 24 though. I know, but that I feel like. Fablemans should have been marketed as an A24 movie. Universal was just like, well, okay, it didn't make all this money. We gave Spielberg a shot because we owe him kind of thing. So how quickly can we get it on VOD and get some on-demand dollars? Yeah. And again, this poster makes zero sense. But anyways, I go see this film. I, I take a long journey to go there. And instantly, I was personally hooked. We're going to find out in a second about teal because i don't know whether yeah you go first here because i want to hear your thoughts i sat there and i kind of had a jaw-dropping moment because it really starts with spielberg's character as a very young boy going to the movies his parents are taking him to his first film and this is mirrors his own true story when he had briefly lived in new jersey as a kid and they take him to this big theater And they're trying to explain to him everything that he's going to maybe see and experience. And so they have this buildup and it's the greatest show on earth. And I already started getting some uh, tingles on the hairs Mm -hmm. of my arms because as a very little child, this movie was on TV. And because it's the circus um, and it was like big Technicolor. I was attracted and it was a, you know, a a fan favorite of my dad's when he was a little kid. And I remember very distinctly, it's a very impactful movie for a child. It's a really hokey, <laughs> uh, sugary sweet movie that just doesn't hold up as an adult today. I've never seen it. You've never seen it? No. Oh, my God. So, as a kid, there's this huge train crash that happens. Yeah. And, it, and then all the stuff that happens after it's, it's very dramatic. And it really impacted me as a child. And now I'm watching this Fableman's and it's really at the beginning. And I, again, I, I saw it in the theater, so I don't know how it looked on the small screen. You could tell me, but the way that Spielberg and Janusz Kaminski, a cinematographer shoot it, the whole thing 
the whole color scheme of this opening part of the movie looks kind of like a retro Technicolor. Um, it really kind of startled me. But the way Spielberg throughout all his filmography, and I don't know if it never, I mean, I knew he would always do this, but it never really made sense to me until this movie, is the way his camera angles on the eyes. The eyes. Wait, you never noticed this before? No, I always did. Oh, but what okay. I said is I didn't quite, it didn't quite put it together for me that the reason why he does this is because there's something about how those images impact him in the eyes. And throughout this Fableman movie, I feel it's his best use of how the eyes and what the eyes see in life and in the images. And I, again, that this set up the whole movie for me in a way that I really enjoyed. And I started to feel like I understood Spielberg a little bit in the way, why, what is passion is of the movies? I, right. I, I thought it was very fascinating. This young boy, he is impacted, almost sh shocked by what he saw because he never knew this kind of thing existed. And then he's having what it seems like a nightmare and his parents are like, uh-oh, we made a big mistake taking him to this movie. <laughs> but instead he is just thrilled and excited in his room. It's like this movie will not leave his brain and now he wants a train set, but he wants to crash them. And- eventually the the mom gets this idea that take the dad's film camera and if we film the crash once you won't break everything right and then instead he makes this fantastical like car crash or train crash setup and the mom's realizing like how could he have even done this so perfectly and he's like wow i had to crash the train set like 17 <laughs> yeah. times <laughs> to get all the different angles and she realizes that he has this need to recreate this experience that he had in the theater. He wants to have that for himself. He wants to figure out how do I do what I just saw? Well, and, and, and he wants to have that impact on other people too. Like that scene when he shows this to his mom, there's something about sharing the way he saw it with other people that I think is really special to him. And that's where I, I mean, again, I guess there are people that will see this and they just will not relate to this movie perhaps, but as a film lover and as a kid, I would like, I got so excited about the movies and everything about the movies and I had no internet or any of that right. stuff. So I just, like it was the newspaper and the trailers and seeing the films, I would hound my mom to take me or my dad to take me to these movies. And afterwards, I would be so excited about these films and when I saw them and they didn't to share that. I wanted to share the story and the experience yeah. and try to get people as excited about the movie as I was. And I was almost like watching this movie. I felt a kinship with Steven Spielberg in that, wow, he was like kind of like the same kid, though obviously a lot more talented in, in making movies than I ever was. I had a similar thing too, and especially in those beginning sequences, because you just said we didn't have the internet. We also didn't have video the way kids have it now. You know, my kids make movies on the phone all the time. Really? Yeah. Mine don't. <laughs> it, no, it's like a fun thing they do with their friends. And, you know, my daughter, when she was four or five, got into the movies and would make movies with her dolls. And we set up a green screen. 
she would put her dolls in Wizard of Oz costumes, and we'd put in a background, backgrounds from Wizard of Oz, and play the music from the movie, and she would dance her dolls around. And so we actually had a green screen like set up in the living room so we could film her movies. Imagine what the young Steven Spielberg would have done with all that green screen. <laughs> well, exactly. Oh but my God. point is, like, that's pretty advanced technology to have available to a five-year-old, right? But when I was uh, in high school, and I had I had access to some video equipment, but I also did Super Eight, and that there's scenes of him splicing the Super Eight, and he's got the film strips taped to his desk, and he's got the little viewer, and I had a very similar. That up. That, that so these are things that there's like many layers in this movie, which is one of the knocks that uh, I know you have with Spielberg is that his films don't tend to have a lot of layers. Um, and I, I, I this is the one that I was like, wow, maybe he was saving it up for this because uh, on that first layer, just this enthusiasm and showing the process of what young Steven Spielberg went through, yeah, um, to make movies. Now it's interesting. There's that uh, that book, The Outliers, and it talks about like the ten thousand hours of practice and all right, that. Right. But one of the things is about people being born in a place and time and having access. Yes, you know, it, it, and that's one of the things that Spielberg had. His father was this tech junkie. And it was involved in the early days of computers. And so, like, he had a film camera. And so, he now had a device that he could use to make movies. Yeah. Which a lot of people didn't have. But, you know, he had the sort of the enthusiasm of his mom, kind of an artist, wanting him to pursue that art. And his father, like, maybe liking how his son was interested in technical stuff but really thought of this as just a hobby that could maybe lead to better things that had nothing to do with movies right but also there's this sense of uh spielberg figuring out there's this sequence where he makes gunshots look real that whole aspect floored me and it floored me not because we haven't seen like the moment of like ah somebody comes up with an inspiration and does it right but the way spielberg unfolds this sequence yeah and he gets like a little idea from that uncle that he didn't know who shows up for one night right and then he does this but the effect that we see on screen is amazing it's amazing but then his dad says something about it which is now you're thinking like an engineer right he just wants to break down what he's doing as technical and and how it could be applied to engineering he has the artistic side from his mom, but he does, Spielberg does have the mind of an engineer also. That's what's so great. It is. He, he's got, you actually see both parts of his parents going into him. Yes. I personally love this movie, find it to be one of the best films that I've seen this year. Not the best, um, that nothing, nothing that'll probably knock Tar off, but it, one of the best. And so part of this experiment that we're doing today yes is to find out whether Teal loved the movie, liked the movie, didn't like it, or hated it. <laughs> and I am going to go and, and say on this first one, my prediction is, I, I really don't want to say that he loved it because I, I don't want to be disappointed if I hope he loved it. <laughs> but I'm going to say that he at least liked it. That's what my my I'm going to fall on, that I think that Teal liked The Fablemans. I liked it. You are correct. He didn't love it. I didn't love it. Bastard. But I liked it a lot. So I'm somewhere between like and love. And definitely the best Spielberg movie I've seen uh, in a long time. 
I mean, there's so much that I like. There's another, I mean, again, I don't want to, it's like, it's like caught, not wanting to spoil things for people, but you know, there's a lot going on with his parents' relationship and there's stuff as you as a viewer, I think you're clued in on earlier than necessarily um, Stephen's character or his uh, sister's. Yeah, so that... <laughs> well, I can see where you have some issues with it, but but see, here's what I like. I feel like it was a, it was apparent, and maybe even apparent to the parents. That's what's so weird, right? But it's apparent from the first thirty seconds of those characters on screen. Yeah, but it's also apparent to like the mother-in-law. Yes, absolutely. It's apparent to everyone except the kids. Yeah, but think about that, right? Spielberg's always trying to put himself in the eyes of the kids. Where it pays off is there's this really amazing sequence where Spielberg figures things out. Right. And so this, I, I'm debating about this. I have. Oh, I, I loved it. Okay. I have not settled on it because I thought it was a great sequence, but I kept thinking, what if we were aligned with that character in this discovery? What if, what if at that moment we looked back at those scenes and thought, oh, wow, we should have got, we should have picked up on that. But instead I was just, uh, I, I, and so I don't, I don't know which way I come down on this, but I was asking that question of what if we didn't put it together until he put it together. I think it's impossible the way films are today, honestly. And I bet you there still be, will be people that will see this movie and not put it together until that moment. And I think okay. we are very astute f film people and we can pick up these things. But what I liked about it is that it's a moment that this, I keep calling him Spielberg. He's not Spielberg in the movie, but he's pretty, pretty much as <laughs> yeah. close as you could possibly it's, be. In the it's pretty much Spielberg. I, you know, watching it, I, I, I was thinking, why did they even change the names? Like, but I mean, the character, like, how did he get actors that look so much like him? Yes. And his parents. I mean, I know I've seen pictures. Michelle Williams looks pretty much exactly like his mother at, at that time, uh, in, in her life and their lives. So I think the moment isn't necessarily about a reveal. Though it is, it's him revealing to his mom that he's found out. Well, that scene I felt like was perfect. It, it, it was. It was kind of. It was almost like you know. It's emotionally shattering a bit. Yeah. But but I think what it is is it's it's not it's not about discovering some secret about your parents. It's discovering that your parents are human and adults, and that adults are complex, and yes. they obviously have things going on. They, I mean, they, these these were very nurturing and parents who gave him a good life but then after that like because of that discovery or at least in his viewpoint things change and aren't the same again and he as a kid growing up is struggling with the emotional impact of his parents splitting apart at the seams feeling in a way responsible angry at his mom yeah siding with his dad who's never never really shown appreciation for what he wants to do I, I think that's complex, complex for Spielberg to do. I totally agree. Complex for, and that was the point at which I, at which I got caught up in the movie. That, that was a change for me. Well, so I feel like it has a little bit of peaks and valleys. It starts off and I'm really into it. It settles in down, but then it goes up and then I actually think that the third act is what makes it great because, you know, I experienced growing up a share of bullying. Yeah. And I was expecting, again, based on the trailer, that the movie was going to be filled with Spielberg trying to triumph over 
bullying throughout his entire childhood right. mixed in with stuff. But no, most of the film, he's in Arizona and he's having this great happy experience and yeah. he's making movies and he has lots of friends and everything's great. But then in his senior year, he gets moved to Northern California where he, again, another strategic move by Spielberg, he casts these giants of people. Yes to be teenagers and he's now lost in a land where he doesn't fit in and he is bullied through anti-Semitism and it kind of put a pit in my stomach because I felt like that experience to me was really real. Trying to have like a, a, a high school existence while dodging terrible people. So I thought uh, in watching this, I thought, okay, Part of the reason, because I knew that how much you loved this movie before I watched it. I know I couldn't keep it from you. <laughs> and so I was thinking, you know, part of the reason is okay. We both have this personal connection to filmmaking that uh, we see in in the movie, and uh, but the but there's these other aspects that I feel like are closer to your personal experience than to mine, and so would strike you more deeply on an emotional level and one is the bullying and the other is the divorced parents yeah i mean my my parents didn't split up till i was in um college right uh, so but it was still i mean it was still a big a big seminal moment uh that changed things yeah and again how he deals with the situation i really loved again he does it through uh, kind of film, but he does in this movie. And again, I don't, I don't know how closely it matches up to to real life. But what uh, what you're expecting to happen isn't exactly what happens. Right. And I think that Spielberg does his character anyways does something even smarter. And and all the time I thought it was genius is where he takes the bully and instead of like showing the big strong bully as a bad guy, he he pulls Lenny Riefenstahl. Yes. He makes them look like the, and I think that's like a that's like a, a layered dig that that kid can't recognize. He knows that he's being mocked in a way, but he doesn't realize that Steven Spielberg equates these guys to Nazis. Well, that. <laughs> but also, he asks him. So for me, this is the best part of the movie. It is that scene in the hallway. Oh, it's a great scene. And the bully asks him, why did you do that? You know, and basically the Spielberg character's response is, it's a couple different things, but basically he says, I don't know why I did it. Yeah. And I think sometimes he doesn't know in the, the conscious, but the subconscious knows. Well, exactly. But the fact that there's some ambiguity about that, and there's some ambiguity about the, this particular, the other bully is not ambiguous, but this particular one is, and there's, questions maybe almost about his sexuality there's questions about whether he wants to be a bully or not uh there's questions about how he sees himself and his own insecurities and i feel like that um he made that into a complex character and uh, but also that the Spielberg character's response to that is, I'm not quite sure why I did that. I'm both idolizing you and making fun of you at the same time. Yeah. And that ambiguity seems like something that I have not seen in a Spielberg movie in a while. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. Yes. And, and, <laughs> and this is one of my big problems with Spielberg is a lack of subtlety and a lack of ambiguity, that things are just telegraphed to the audience. And this actually was more complex than that. Uh, I feel like the girlfriend at the end is in the third act is more complex and the parents marriage. So basically there's more complexity and subtlety and nuance in this movie than I've seen in, from Spielberg in a long time. Well, I think there's a lot of ways that they could have simplified situations to go along more the way you'd expect in other movies and that, that it doesn't is very fascinating to me. And it is, it's new ground for Spielberg, I think. Yeah. Well, the last time, <laughs> so the movie this reminded me the most of uh, was Close Encounters. Right. He always finds a way to personalize the inner story um, versus the bigger, you know, alien thing. And, and that's what's tied into him. So my favorite scene in, in all of Spielberg <laughs> is the crybaby scene in Close Encounters. Oh, right. When they're around the table and, and Dreyfus is, is kind of uh, having a breakdown. And the, yeah. And, and he's in the bathtub crying and the kid freaks out and starts yelling crybaby at him. Because uh, he can't stand to see his father crying. And he's just yelling, you're a crybaby, you're a crybaby. And like, it's such a raw emotion. And this kid dealing with the fact that his father is, is suddenly human and flawed. Yeah. And that uh, Fableman's reminded me of that in this sort of understanding of your parents and so and and also just sort of a marriage falling apart is what's happening in Close Encounters, and it just seems like both of those movies. And here's the other thing: Spielberg wrote both of these movies. I mean, yes, yeah, well, he, I mean, he co-wrote the Fablemans, but you're right on on uh, on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You're right. Yeah, and so I feel like there's something really personal to him in both of these stories, and this story of the family sort of disintegrating is very similar they're not copies but uh it's a similar sort of view of a child uh childlike view of a family disintegrating and yeah and so that touched me well it's like even in a movie like jaws there's these scenes around tables and it's yes. the part where he's feeling really low because that boy was killed by the shark and they caught this other one but then the mom comes in and slaps him and he's sitting drunk at the table and his little kid is almost trying to cheer his father up and they play that little game with the peekaboo yes and yeah and those are like the moments that i think elevate films like jaws from just like this b-movie action film um so it sounds like you're giving this a good recommendation no i'm definitely giving it a recommendation i think i think it's a good movie i i have a lot of the same problems with it that i have with a lot of spielberg movies there's a couple of points where the cinematography made me angry i feel like why i wanted to see it in the theater in the theater, this thing looked amazing. Okay, here's one example. <laughs> I also like the camera movements in the movie. Spielberg's camera movements are generally great. The only problem I have with Spielberg's camera movements is I've seen enough of his movies that uh, th those camera movements are now predictable and obvious to me. And I see him doing the same thing over and over again. And so my problem with them is basically I just go, oh, it's another Spielberg shot. 
you know, it's not bad. It's good. It's well done. But I've come to expect it. So it's not really a knock of of any individual movie. It's just when I look at the whole body of work, I see all the tricks used over and over again. Yeah, but you know what? I'm sorry, but they worked really well in this movie and he's made 40 films. They worked way better in this movie than they have for me in a while. And okay, so the scene that the cinematography made me angry is they're on this camping trip and it's nighttime. And they're sitting around the fire. And I'm thinking, where is all that light coming from? Behind the trees, there's just a huge amount of light glowing, flooding the scene. And then she starts dancing. And this thing is so overlit. And the friend says, hey, buddy, how come you're not filming this? And he says, there's not enough light. And I'm like, what does he mean there's not enough light? Janus has flooded this thing with light. It's so overlit. Oh, come on now. Stop it. Stop it. Stop. <laughs> yes. Are you, are you over nitpicking? You are. Stop it. Stop. Well, but the thing is, I was already thinking there's too much light in this scene. But, and, <laughs> and then they say there's not enough light. And I was like, oh, come on. Yeah, but see, I think that was an interesting idea is that when you are out in the woods, right, your eyes, which we don't, cameras don't operate the same way, they see more light. It's more light. But Spielberg's character already knew that no matter what they were seeing, experiencing, and that, and maybe it was overlit for that point, is that it wouldn't be good enough for the camera he already knew that watch this scene again because i know i know the exact scene because i I, in the back of my mind i'm like this is something that teal's gonna pick apart and it is hard when you're doing a scene like that but like i don't know i i think that i I, i'm willing to give that a little bit of leeway and if that's why you can't like a movie come on (laughs) no 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 i it's not i'm just i'm nitpicking i admit that i'm nitpicking yeah but the idea is that the audience should be able to see everybody when they're talking it shouldn't be so dark that the audience is like but there's but there aren't even any shadows in the scene like oh my God. you know again this is where you didn't want to go and take the travel to see it in the theater which you wouldn't have, and i'm just saying it, it looked much different i bet i'm just saying sometimes i wish that gordon willis had shot a spielberg oh movie well uh, look we're gonna get we haven't even gotten to the beginning this is why we were supposed to go in the beginning because i feel like I, again i think Kaminsky does some good work and then he does some stuff that it just doesn't fit yeah. a Spielberg movie. And the biggest problem is that since Schindler's List in 1993, so we're looking at almost yes. 30 years, Janusz Kaminsky has shot every Spielberg movie. Yes. And so some of the moves that you complain about may not just be Spielberg moves. They may be mechanically built into the brain yes. of Janusz Kaminsky. And sometimes he needs to go off and work with other people because when he went and did Diving Bell and the Butterfly, he would so far out of whatever comfort zone you thought the guy was in, he does something completely different. And so it would, it would have been beneficial, I think, for Spielberg to sometimes work with uh, a different camera people. Yes. I And there, this Janos does this thing where every light in the background glows and it has this gauzy. Yeah. It's his version of the Richardson glow. And it's, you have to just kind of accept it because that's, that's the thing he does. Right. And it's not all. And I always don't know if I like it, but. Well, the problem is that when you watch a bunch of these movies back to back, they just all start to look the same. And so, right, like, it looks great. It, it actually looks great. I liked it in Fableman's more than I liked it in, say, The Post. But 
It was look. We're never you know we you, this is why we start the beginning and not the end because we haven't gotten the book. But like but the, but I agree with you because the post doesn't look the way it should. I don't know. We could keep going on Fable Men's because I could nitpick a lot. I'm not asking you to. But here's what. <laughs> So the reason I liked this film was the ambiguity and the complexity and Michelle Williams uh, performance is amazing. Yes, she's really good. I, I, I was stunned by her performance. I totally uh, bought this character. I didn't feel like it was acting. I just bought this completely as a person. And right from the beginning, I felt like this was a really just a subtle complex performance and again like this movie it's more subtle than a performance i've seen in a spielberg movie in a while sometimes his perf so my issue with spielberg and and the thing that keeps this movie from being great for me is that sometimes things are it doesn't leave enough for the audience sometimes he tells you he telegraphs a little too much you, you mean you're speaking to these audiences that like need to have things explained in a marvel way <laughs> i mean okay come on uh, I, <laughs> look i'm i'm talking about me as an audience well member. no but see this is your knock on spielberg is that why you say that like you know you don't go back to watching his movies um time and time again because you're not getting new things from them. Yeah. Well, that's part of like, in some respects, part of his genius is Absolutely. gives you everything you need to know. He's not trying to hide anything from you. Um, and even this, like he, he, he puts it out there in a way so that everybody gets what he's trying to go for. Yes. And that's, and so it's just very plain. I mean, and I don't mean plain as in boring, but plain as in clear. Uh, it, it's really, everything is really clearly communicated. And what I liked about this movie was that there were some things where I felt as an audience member, I had to do a little work. Well, if you want to do some work and fill in the gaps, I got a three hour and 20 minute uh, number one <laughs> well, top sight and sound okay, film but, for you. <laughs> but you know me, I like doing some work when I watch a movie. I mean, I, okay. I, I can appreciate movies where, you know, and when we started this show, <laughs> when years years and years ago when we started this show one thing i said uh was i didn't want to talk about marvel movies right and we found ourselves not going in depth on them but having to talk to them because they didn't go away <laughs> during the show they didn't go away they, they didn't, they go, didn't away. go away and i kind of thought well and hoped they would but you know part of the reason i didn't want to talk about them is because what is there to say there it's all right there you don't they do not with maybe one or two minor exceptions small exceptions uh they don't require much from the audience it's true. So, and especially the last uh, several of them. <laughs> well, no, they do require something from the audience, which is a suspension of goodwill. Yeah, because clearly the audiences still don't have an. I don't know when audiences are going to like clue in that these are just not good anymore. They're starting to. I see people on uh, message boards saying, "This is the year that Marvel really lost it for me." Hey, all I know is my oldest, who's fourteen, he has been keeping a list of all the movies from twenty twenty two he's seen. He's, he, he's his list includes seventeen movies, um, so he hasn't seen as many as I have, and. The number, like at the very bottom, worst film of the year for him was Thor. 
with the second worst being the Doctor Strange movie. <laughs> and then after that, the Gray Man. And the fact that he put those two Marvel movies below the Gray Man tells you that kids are getting fed up. Yeah, I would put Doctor Strange above Gray Man. but I would too. But they'd still be all towards the bottom for me because I never. So the Fablemans, I could watch a second time. Hey, kids, listen to me. Look, I'm telling you, it's a great movie. Um, And and I think Teal's sort of saying it's great, though he wants to nitpick it because it's Spielberg. And maybe that's a good way. We're going to start now on the show, which is Well, here's the thing. If he still wants to talk about a movie he didn't think was great. Here's the thing. I liked The Fablemans. And that's saying, and that's a very high recommendation for me for a Spielberg movie. Again, this is a and this is a weird thing, right? To knock, but like, I think where Teal appreciates Spielberg is when you when you are at that level and you are that great and you've made some really outstanding movies in your career. Teal expects a higher bar from you every time, Stephen. It, well, it's true, and and so my issues and they're minor. Uh, you know, Fablemans is right on the and it and it may go on my top ten for the year. Oh, <laughs> right. And but my issue with it is the places where it doesn't demand enough of me. And I understand that that is this key to Spielberg's appeal and why his movies are so great is because they give so much to the audience and they welcome the audience and they invite you in. Well, then don't you think that this movie deserves a way better fate than it's getting? Absolutely. I mean, I feel like it's almost a travesty. If we've all loved Spielberg, don't we owe it to ourselves to give this guy a little bit of love and and see this movie? (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. So, no, this. uh, my point is that this is a recommendation from me and me saying I liked this movie. And I actually said I'm somewhere between like and love. This is a high recommendation from me. Well, also keep in mind, you just saw the movie last night. Yeah. And I mean... You know, again, you didn't have that big theater experience that I did, um, though it wasn't that big a theater. But I mean, again, I really, there's some reason that Spielberg is a guy that I feel that the small screen and never knowing how the stream rates are and all that stuff, it just, to me, it demands being seen in the theater if I can. Uh, and it makes a difference. Now, yeah. we're going to take you back, kids. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. And we're not going to spend a ton of time on every single movie. It's not going to be a 20-part episode here. Well, and we're starting with his Super 8 films that he did as a kid, right? We're not. No, no, oh. no. Because all you can't, you can't, I, I wish he had them, and I wish that they could be put into a collection. But like, like for instance, one of his films got lost by- yeah. Like in a festival or something. And uh, yeah, a lot of it doesn't exist or he hasn't released it. And I would love to see them. There's a bunch of clips in the documentary. Yeah, but they're just clips. Yeah. Uh, and I've never seen Amblin. Well, that's the one you, you can't really see more than like a few minutes of. Oh, really? Okay. I it's didn't know. Re- yeah, that's, oh. that's lost. And so is what, Firelight or? Oh, okay. I didn't realize Amblin was lost. That's too yeah. bad. Uh, yep. Nope. It was just shown like a couple of times. That's it. Um, no, we're going to take you back. You know, he did some TV work when he was getting a start. Um, we haven't even talked about the end of the Fablemans. I'm not sure if you liked the little cameo or not, but uh, Loved I enjoyed it. it. It was a great story that then got translated into uh, the film. Loved it. Great. Yeah. <laughs> um, I even like, you know, Spielberg, one of the things I have on him is that if you want to go and make a comedy, don't don't hire Spielberg. He's not very good with funny. Um, he does something at the very end, which... It's geeky, but I thought it was kind of funny. I, I, I found it totally charming. I loved it. Uh, unfortunately, the poster gives it away. 
bad on the poster, but I just in conjunction with that last big scene, I just thought it was funny because in the big screen, everyone was laughing. I thought it was totally charming and playful and uh, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was good because you just don't see him using the camera to make a funny. <laughs> yes, exactly. And and it just, uh, I don't know. It, it, I found it totally charming. It was a great way to end the movie because it turns, uh, it turns the movie back onto him. Yeah. And again, you know, and I've read a lot, you know, it is a very personal story. I was surprised. Like, I thought it was going to be, oh, there's some touches, but it was highly fictionalized. But I, I it's very nonfiction-y. It's and very nonfiction-y. Yeah. Him and his mom did have that secret. Yes. Um, and his mom actually kept on encouraging him. He had like a script. He thought I would just put it in a, you know, we'd put it in a bin and just at least got out of a system and he really wasn't going to make it. And then COVID happened and he was still thinking about his parents. We just lost. They, they lasted a really long time. Yeah. His dad was 105 or something. I know. And his mom, you know, was like almost a hundred yeah. when she passed and you know, COVID really made him see how precious life is in that, you know, I mean, he's going to be. 76 yeah in where you may have just turned 76 yeah on the he's, 10th he's he's around there though and so you know how many movies does he have and he kind of thought you know what if i only end up having one more movie i'll do this i'll tell this story that i never did and i want to do it and uh I'm, I'm glad he did and so i enjoyed that but now his first film which is not in theaters though i think they showed it in theaters in europe uh, is the 1971 film Duel kind of put him on the map? Said that he could handle material. It was a made-for-TV movie? Yeah, and very Hitchcockian, I guess. I had never seen this. I know that's. A, I'm kind of shocked. Now I, I say that, but I was a big Spielberg head right yeah. in the early 80s, and so it came on uh, like in Massachusetts, came on Channel 38, and I was over at my grandmother's house and watched it, and I enjoyed it. But it's also the kind of movie that while I liked it. I never felt I needed to see it again because it's just, you know, it's a duel, right? Between a right. faceless and, truck driver and, yeah. and this mild-mannered guy, Dennis Weaver. It doesn't have a lot of story. No, he's just, he's on a road, like a business road trip. So you haven't seen it again since then? No. Um, so I liked it. I mean, I did like it and I recommend people who are looking to the, the whole completionist and Spielbergography, people should check it out because it does show that he had a command of editing and, and and making films and now seeing a movie like the fablemans you really see that he had a fascination with things like trains and trucks and i am going to find out whether teal liked it whether he loved it whether he didn't like it or he hated it and i'm not going to say he loved it and i'm not going to say he hated it. i i think he thought it was good like i think he liked it but i don't think he loved it <laughs> That's accurate. Yeah, I liked it. Uh, it's it's a pretty. I mean, I was sort of surprised that it was uh, made for TV uh, because it's pretty. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like TV. See, I didn't see it years only on TV, and so whatever copy you saw, like, was it one three three or is it one eight five? Because I know sometimes they would shoot. You know, a TV movie might be shot one three three, or sometimes you even see like the uh, it was done in camera to make sure that they knew it was going to be. For it was not one three three. Um, okay. It was 185. Interesting. So it feels like a feature film. It didn't feel like I was watching TV. It felt like a low budget feature uh, from the era. And one thing I was impressed with throughout this movie was what he did with the budget, because it's obviously very low budget. And, uh, and I've seen plenty of other movies from, from this era that are low budget the number of setups that he does is 
really impressive because just, uh, you know, we recently watched uh, Road Games. Yes, which has a similar feel to Duel in a way. It's driving across, you know, it's a highway movie. And so it's similar in that respect, but it didn't have the number of setups. And so Duel has a huge number of setups, huge number of interesting shots. The editing is fantastic. And, you know, there's a scene with Dennis Weaver in this diner. And what Spielberg does with the space and with uh, the Dennis Weaver character's perception, there's these four or five guys sitting at the lunch counter, and he's trying to figure out if one of those guys is the driver of the truck that's parked outside. And the way he deals with the point of view and looking at these guys and the close-ups on their boots and sort of panning across them, and these guys keep sort of looking over at him, and the whole paranoia of this scene and the way it's done uh, in terms of visual storytelling is fantastic and not the kind of thing that you see in other low budget movies of that era well when you say low budget think about it it was a tv budget which by very nature was low yes that's my point it was a tv (laughs) budget and it is you know clearly they don't i mean you know there's like maybe 15 actors in the whole thing and uh 90% of the movie is a car and a truck driving on a road and that he makes that visually exciting and tense and yeah you you see this movie and you go this guy is good like he has got a flair for visual storytelling and so i get to the end of the movie right and i'm gonna spoil the ending uh because this movie came out in 1971 and i don't care if you uh so (laughs) I, i had mixed feelings about the ending but at the end the truck goes over a cliff and i was expecting the truck to explode and it doesn't it just kind of crumples into a heap and then there's this series of shots of like a tire spinning or some oil dripping and it's this whole sort of death scene right and so i was a little disappointed that the truck didn't blow up i wanted this big fiery ending so then i'm watching the documentary about him and he's talking about this and the network told him to reshoot the ending so that the truck blows up (laughs) and he refused this, it's a TV movie over which he doesn't have final cut or anything. He fought them on the ending because he felt that the bully, that this was a movie about his experience with bullies and that the bully needs to die slowly and that that's the most satisfying thing for the audience and that the big explosion is almost too glamorous. So he wanted the audience to sit there with the bully slowly dying and bleeding out and there i mean and it literally is bleeding out there's like oil dripping right and so uh i just thought that was pretty amazing that on this first tv movie he fought the network over the ending and that and that he had that artistic integrity right from the beginning so i like duel and of course that got him his first feature film um the zanuck browns hired him to do this movie the sugarland express 1974 and it was loosely based on a real incident that happened um, much quicker than it does in the movie. Um, it was all over in like, you know, an hour and a half or something. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, but 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 the details were accurate in the sense that uh, what happens 
to the couple yeah um actually happened like i mean oh, the, the okay. end result really yeah. was though though it was more instantaneous right let's just say so a lot of people haven't seen this movie uh, it doesn't get shown around a lot maybe i don't i mean nothing of his is really forgotten but i saw the film like in 1992 and i was impressed you know going back now it was a you know He'd been doing movies for 20 years, seen a lot of stuff. Uh, Jurassic Park and Schindler's List hadn't come out yet. And I was kind of like, wow, this doesn't feel like the kind of movie that Spielberg makes. But it was really more like the kind of movie he made in the 70s. Yeah. And then I rewatched it uh, in the past few weeks because of the fact that we were going to do this show. I I, I was a little blown away. I'm going to put it in my love category because... I think there's a lot going on in this film that was designed to be really like, you know, maybe in some theaters, possibly drive-ins. Uh, car chase movies were, and, and car chase over a periods of land were big It, it was a whole time. genre. It was a whole genre. So like there was a, a need to kind of fit certain tropes, but then Spielberg takes what really should have been just like a B movie and he does things in it that are way different than you would normally see in your typical B-movie. And so I kind of look at it at that lens, not how ultimately successful some things were or others. Well, that's basically exactly what I was saying about Duel. You get this film where, and it's funny, you talk about like studio interference. Uh, the Browns were worried that Spielberg, this was going to be more movie that he could handle. Right. So when a big setup was going to happen, they, they showed up because they were like, we got to see if this guy can actually even direct this. Like, are we going to, you know, we're going to blow a budget here. Right. They get there in the morning and it was a very complicated setup, I guess. And, and Spielberg had not only already blocked and had everything set up, like he'd already shot some stuff and they were just like, okay, we're in good hands. <laughs> this guy obviously <laughs> knows what he's doing. Um, and so now the real question is, because Teal, you had not seen the movie ever. I had not ever seen it. And you went back to see it. Yeah. And so the question is, does he love it, like it, doesn't like it, or hates it? Now I'm going to go out on a freaking limb here and say that you love this movie. I do. Because I think years later, from the time, and I'm talking like the 30 years since I had first seen it, this movie says more. It, it it's a it's a window to what America is today. Yeah, that I don't think I could have seen in '92. It, it it actually shows me how little progress <laughs> in some areas, or that how things have always been there. We just weren't paying attention. Well, yeah, and I mean it's funny because they this couple in this movie go viral before that was a thing yeah yeah they're kind of like a robin hoodie kind of characters but they become celebrities right i mean well, this is like, even before dog day afternoon came out yes yeah and so uh, like that idea of sort of the folk hero outlaw celebrity is a part of american culture but I, but this movie was way ahead of its time in in addressing that uh that phenomenon um, the other thing I love about this movie is the ending. Yeah, it's well, it's probably why it didn't do well. <laughs> yeah, it, it's exactly why it didn't do well. But as I'm watching the movie, so uh, <laughs> just pulling back a little bit, one of my issues with Spielberg is that so many of his movies are about victory. And Sugarland Express, uh, like Fableman's, uh, Fableman's, yes, is sort of victory, but it's also there's loss. It's complicated. But Sugarland Express has a co emotionally complex ending. 
that uh, stayed with me because what you're rooting for throughout the movie is complicated and there aren't really there are some bad guys in the movie who just go crazy with their guns uh but the cop is not a bad guy no and i love see that's the thing is that the relationship that that cop has with goldie hahn yes william atherton which by the way so goldie hahn way different type of performance than she was ever giving at that yes. time and then this William Atherton, which we all got to know from Real Genius yeah. and Ghostbusters, you're like watching this movie and go, "How this guy didn't become a freaking star?" Well, that's I, I. I think I texted you that after I saw yeah. it. Like, I, I, I know this guy, but I know him as an older guy, and I just thought he was, you know, a middle aged, you know, guy who's sort of a middle aged character actor. But here he is. He's this young, handsome, energetic, really an, a great leading man kind of performance, and and he's totally magnetic to watch and you know the casting is great in this movie all around and it showed the browns even though the movie didn't do terribly but it wasn't any big hit and it was in and out of theaters but it gave them enough to say okay well we got another property another b movie yeah it's like on a blockbuster book this movie jaws and this guy is capable i think of handling an action movie because you know spielberg you can see Again, we go. It's, maybe it's good that we started with the Fablemans. What you see in that, you see that he has this love of crashes and yes. and, and big actiony things, and he gets a chance. It's a little bit overkill, I think. But the problem, and it's not the problem, but the the reason for the overkill is the fact that. It was probably expected that, oh, audiences are going to want to see lots of action and car crashes and chases, and that's the way those movies were being made. And he is an absolute master at choreographing and shooting really complex physical action. You know, there's a lot of cars in this movie doing a lot of complicated things and just getting all those moving parts working together. It, it goes back to sort of that engineering part of his brain that he can uh, take something that complex and that big. I mean, there's scenes in this with like a hundred cars. And how this guy who had only directed this movie Duel, yeah. is, it shows this command to do a big project. It, absolutely. And so I think it was Janet Maslin gave Sugarland Express, you know, th this guy is a great filmmaker. Uh, it remains to be seen if there's any depth. A couple of things that I think aided him um, and in and, and, and this film, and of course, his next big super blockbuster yeah. is the fact well, that here he's working with the great cinematographer, Vilmo Sigmund. And yeah. one of the great things uh, about uh, Vilmo Sigmund, and it, it was kind of maybe a signature of the way films were shot in the 70s that I personally love. Um, it had a lot to do with like film stocks, like faster film stocks, and also the zoom cameras, etc. is there's like this weird gritty realism yes. that I loved in the movies of the seventies that seems to be almost impossible to repeat. And you see this from like almost all my favorite films from the seventies. They have this look that it's not quite documentary, but it feels to me in a weird way, more realistic than today's like high gloss digital cinematography. Again, my issue with Janusz Kaminski, it's like I watched these earlier movies and I just wish Spielberg had kept mixing it up a little bit uh, in the later half of his career with some different visual looks. And yeah, and and, and you see him working with Vilma Sigmund and it's like, wow, okay, this is, you know, he could really do something different here. 
Well, uh, jumping ahead, Zygmunt shoots uh, Close Encounters yes. of the Third Kind. He wins an Oscar, by the way, for Best Cinematography. And it also has this great look. Yeah. And then Zygmunt, he goes in and he shoots with Chimino, he shoots Deer Hunter. Yeah. And then he, of course, gets you know trapped in Heaven's Gate. And so he really wasn't available. So I don't know whether like Spielberg wanted right. to work with him more. Zygmunt wasn't available, I guess, for the next film was Jaws. of course this is one of my all-time favorite movies it's probably the spielberg movie i've seen the most i mean i'm talking a good 20 times yeah i've seen it in the theater six times and i was too young to see it in the theater when it was a big sensation in 75 though i saw the poster and of course was like finger pointing yes. i want to see that movie and i was like no that'll be too terrifying for you so it became an obsession and when it was fine i think i saw jaws 2 in the theater like before i ever saw jaws in incomplete oh interesting okay yeah yeah I think I first saw Jaws, not even all the way on TV until it was time to go to bed. And then I had to drag my tape recorder out and my dad would tape it as much as the tape allowed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that's how obsessed I was. And then it came out to the drive-ins. Uh, I saw it at the drive-ins with The Deep. And so the drive-ins was the first time I saw it in the theater. I mean, in the drive-ins, it was the first time yeah. I saw it in full. And then a couple of years later at a revival house, I got to see it in the theater and it was a much different experience seeing it in the theater just from the you know the sure, drive-ins. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's not much. We're not doing a Jaws episode here. So all I can say for me personally is that when I look at movies and why they're great, not only because it's just a great story and the fact that Spielberg had to figure out how to make something suspenseful when the shark really looked terrible and yeah. wasn't working. So how do you keep that suspense and make people feel like they've seen the shark even when they haven't seen the shark? Yes. So that when you see the shark, even though it's fake, it makes amazing impact and your brain thinks it's real. So that makes it great. The story in itself, the construction of the story, I think is fantastic and the performances are iconic and great. And then the John Williams score turns that movie in from whatever it would have been into something completely yeah. different. So you have this score. And then on top of it, out of all of the motion pictures that are that are um, narrative, to me, this is one of the finest examples of film editing you'll ever see. Verna Fields, who also edited the Sugarland Express yeah. and did some amazing things there in a few sequences – this to me, I mean, she won the Oscar. She deserved to win the Oscar. And if the editing wasn't what it was, I don't know. You know, so did Spielberg get aided a little bit by the fact that it has some amazing editing and and this iconic music? Probably right, but that's still, I think, you know, some of that responsibility lies with the director to find the right people. To uh, it's not like he just lucked out with a good score and a good editor. He he made those choices and. He also shot the coverage that, you know, this goes back to what I was saying with Sugarland Express, is that his ability to choreograph, block, and work with physical space 
and in the documentary, he talks about doing this in Munich. But in Jaws, you really see this same thing that's in Duel and Sugarland, where he can really work with the mechanics of a space and orient us in. You know, I've been thinking about this. Well, Verna Fields doesn't get to edit the movie if he doesn't give her the coverage. So he knows exactly. what yes. you have to shoot. That's that's the key. It's like when you're on a set and all the chaos, what do you shoot? Now, did some of that stuff get shot because he had to st- he had to shoot stuff because he didn't, you know, and it right. maybe have been some movies are lucky accidents, right? So Jaws is a is a product of all the terribleness. It was one of his least favorite shoots, right? Yeah. And it and it like doubled budget and shooting days and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. It it became the phenomenon that it was uh, it kind of jump started this idea with studios cuz remember it was released it, it, they thought, hey, you know, they saw the film, right? They thought, hey, it's good. But this new strategy they had was, well, you know, how long are people going to want to watch? People didn't right. go to the movies in the summer. That was like literally, we're dealing with people don't want to go to the theaters to see anything other than, you know, a special film or a genre film. Right. People didn't go to the movies in the summer. They did other things. This is the film that changed it. They mm-hmm. opened it wide, which they didn't do. They used to just release movies in like one city here, there, um, in the big markets, just a couple of theaters, yeah. and then build the word of mouth. This was different. And then suddenly studios were like, whoa. Oh, yeah. Th- no, this movie changed Hollywood forever. Yeah, but it didn't happen right away because the next year they weren't prepared for that. So 76 kind of like had its blockbusters, but it wasn't until then Star Wars, which again was released and they thought it was going to be like a kiddie movie for a couple of weeks. So I'm going to say that you love this movie, even though it's not, you don't love it as much as I do, but you do love it. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I don't think very many people could love it as much as you do. Right. Uh, and oh, there aren't people. <laughs> the people that you know. No, I'm just. Uh, I'm just saying you're a Jaws super fan. Like I love this movie, but I'm not a super fan because uh, you know. Yeah. I, I I don't I don't have any nitpicks with it. I don't need to see this movie for. I saw it in IMAX this summer. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I think there were more people that were showing up to see it in IMAX this like one you know sleepy weekend than we're seeing the Fablemans. Yeah, well, I think that's probably true. I, in fact, we should see how much money Jaws made in its re-release here. I mean, I think it did. Pr- I think it made like a good million that weekend, which is yeah, a lot for a movie is- that's like from 1975 and was being released in IMAX. We, we really don't have, sadly, we're, I don't know how we're going to get through this whole list now. Um, <laughs> in our next episode, we but, can do another movie. But we're going to do another one. So Close Encounters of the Third Kind, essentially, I love it. It's one of one of the best films ever made. Uh, it's one of Spielberg's best. Sometimes I, I find some scenes clunky, like it's depending on the watch, because I rewatch this thing a lot. Um, the, the things that I love about it that are weird is that it's when Spielberg is able to make things feel really almost documentary-like. Yes. And, and, and even like through the way the script and the acting in a way that they can't seem to make movies like this anymore. And where where I'm going to go in, and it's really weird to have my favorite part of the movie this, it's when they're in this air traffic control area mm-hmm. and it's when the people in the airplane see a UFO and they're trying to track because they see this weird thing. Yeah. The interaction that's going on in this room, it feels like somebody dropped a camera yes. into the scene and it's so real. And what is brilliant about that is 
he's setting up how you're going to buy into the fact that aliens are here. Like in most movies, people see aliens like that stupid Independence Day and there's like all this over-exaggerated emotion about it and stuff. But I feel like how would people really react in the moment if they are experiencing a close encounter? And this movie does that. It kind of what hooks me. Yet when I first saw the film, my dad, who had earlier that summer sat the kids down and said, there's this movie I saw. We got to go. Star Wars. My dad did. It. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. It, it, it's like you're old enough to appreciate it. And he got, he he was acting the way Spielberg's parents were acting yes. at the Fablemans, which is again, another connection I had to this movie. And he did the same thing with Close Encounters. I saw this, this film and it's amazing. I had no idea that who Spielberg was. I had no idea that he had made Jaws. Right. None of that. So we go see this film that he insisted we have to see. And I remember yeah, there's some dazzling moments, but I felt kind of bored by it. And he was so disappointed that oh. I didn't like love the movie. But he was so obsessed because he himself, like his dream would have been like Richard Dreyfus's to get carried away by aliens right. at the end. I'm not lying. He went and saw the special edition. And then there was a double feature like in 80 or 81 at the local movie theater, they had paired Close Encounters of the Third Kind special edition with Star Trek The Motion Picture. Oh, okay. He loved that too, right? He was a huge Star yeah. Trek guy. He really wanted to go and he just asked, would you go? And I'm thinking to myself, oh, I've never seen Star Trek The Motion Picture, but I means I'm going to have to see <laughs> this, <laughs> this, this Close, close Encounters, Encounters movie again. again. And I remember seeing it and it just, I was a little bit older and it all clicked into place. And I'm like, wow, this is a great movie. However, I was noting that even though there's that extra stuff at the end, which goes on a little bit too long and Spielberg later fixed that a bit, he took out my favorite part of the entire movie as a kid, which is when Richard Dreyfus starts tearing apart the backyard and the yes. neighbor's fence so he can build this big mountain. And Spielberg felt that it was just overkill and redundant. And yet I'm like, you don't understand when you've already made a movie and kids look forward to seeing these scenes and you take it out. It bothers me. (laughs) I had the same reaction to the special edition. There were a few other things. I can't remember the exact scene because I haven't, I have not rewatched the special edition because so I saw it. My, my dad did the same thing. My dad was kind of a nerdy sci-fi Star Trek kind of guy and uh same thing he said you got to see this movie took me to see it i was six years old and i loved it i at age six i was and a lot of it didn't make sense to me uh but there were things like the ship out in the desert well that's the special edition the ship Oh, you're right. It's okay. in there. It's not in the first. See, your memory gets tricked. But yeah. that's one of the great things about the special edition. It's like that scene, which he wanted to put in, is amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But, okay, so like the scene at the railroad crossing with with the pickup truck. I love that. Total Spielberg, by the way. Total Spielberg. But uh, so throughout this movie, I there were images that just seared into my brain as a six-year-old and i became obsessed with this movie i you know if there was a magazine that had an article about this i would like beg my dad to buy it and i went to school and told everyone about it and 
this whole idea of going off with the aliens at the end uh, was something that, you know, I was like your dad. That was like my fantasy as a six-year-old. And it all seemed real to me. Uh, you, you were comparing it to like Independence Day. All the, all these other alien movies and uh, were goofy. And this one, I totally bought. Like, you know, as a, as a kid, I really, I, I, I really thought it was real. And I thought this, I, I, I almost couldn't separate the fantasy from the reality of this movie. And it is things like that air traffic control scene, but also like uh, Charles, this Charles Martin Smith character or the Truffaut character. Like that scene, Bob Balaban. Sorry, Bob, Bob Balaban. It's Which been, I love that. So as, I, as I've seen it more and more over the years, those are things that I just... I, I love so much. I had the same reaction as you did as a kid, even though I wasn't, I found parts of it boring and I quite didn't quite understand the nuances of the story. Yeah. Those images didn't leave me. Like, so that was probably right. the first impact other than like Star Wars where long after I left the theater, and again, I tie this back to why I love the Fablemans and watching his journey as a kid. Yeah. Images, when, when images are very impactful in a movie, long after you've seen the film you can't let the images go exactly that that scene with the giant globe see those are the that, that's the I, it's weird spielberg uses those types of moments in other films and that kind of annoys me sometimes yeah. he does it in almost like in bridges of spies is a scene like that like he, he uses these little um conventions but it works really well like they're like we need a map and yeah suddenly they go and grab that globe and they're they're knocking it down i i it's those moments you're right i love them i love them and the other thing about this movie that i have so this is probably in my oh wait so so T no, loves no, 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 it no I mean, I was, you gave it away you no, love the I movie didn't. don't you no you i didn't you i love was, the movie you, you love it no i didn't say i that. know you love it i know you love it you love it okay i love it <laughs> But it's also of the Spielberg movies. It's in my top three most watched. I'd have to go back. I mean, Raiders is probably my second most watched. So maybe because I've seen it a bunch of times. And you know, you you mentioned Bob Balaban, who you who it does remind me. Of. Yeah, I don't know why. I, I, I just a little brain issue there. But but there's that scene where he goes, um, "Those numbers are coordinates," and you're and yes. you get chills. Yes. like you're just like. Because it's just the way the performance, it's its building to everybody trying to piece together this mystery. There's still so much that we don't know. How about where the signals originate? Excuse me. What letter is 104? Excuse me. Before I got paid to uh, speak French... I, uh, I used to read maps. This first number is a longitude. Yes, and, and you get to piece it together as an audience member. The other thing that really struck me about this as a kid, for some reason, was the Dreyfus character's obsession. And that mashed potato scene, I so I remember as a kid doing that with my mashed potatoes because I was so obsessed with this movie. I was obsessed with uh, Devil's Tower. I wanted. To, I've never seen it. I always wanted to. Oh, you haven't. I, I finally went there, and uh, 
And yeah, I, I was obs obsessed with Devil's Tower, but but something about that character's obsession is so real, and the the family. I've mentioned this with Fableman, sort of the family falling apart. This this character being so obsessed and sort of something that I I don't really think is in any other Spielberg movie is sort of the mental disintegration of a character, but that then comes together as he uh, finds out that this is a real thing and that it's not, he's not losing his mind. And other people share it too. Exactly. And I think that really got me too somehow is, is the idea that all these people are coming together with this shared vision. And well, I didn't understand that as a kid, right? When we talk about what we didn't, that was one of the parts. What I didn't understand is that when the alien ship comes up from behind yeah. uh, his truck, when he stopped and those flashes, they're imprinting. Him. Yes. And that she gets the imprint when her son's taken from the house, which is another, I mean, that sequence it, it, unbelievable. is a yeah. stellar. And, and so I didn't pick up on that as a little kid. No, and neither of course did I. did I. as an adult. Yeah. And that's like why the movie, it, 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 when you're little, sometimes you need to see movies a few times because you can't pick up on those. Even if you like it, you're like, oh, I didn't understand it all. You know, part of it is because I saw it as a kid. And so it revealed itself to me more as I got older. But also I think because of the Dreyfus character and the complexity of that character, this movie actually rewards repeated viewings. I agree. As you know, one of my issues with Spielberg is that his movies don't always reward repeated viewings, but this one absolutely does. Well, I mean, so this is the interesting part is we have to wrap up this first installment <laughs> is that, and we're going to have to find a way to move faster through some of them. Um, because again, it's about whether or not you liked it or loved it. We could do the next one really quickly because I have nothing you to say. You think so? Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, all right. So 1941, I again- I just bringing you back to my history with the movie is I didn't know it was Spielberg. It was oh, just this movie okay. that's coming out. It was this comedy about World War II. And I wasn't seeing a ton of PG movies at the time. I wasn't going a lot yeah. to, to movies. I first get to Woburn, Massachusetts is where I moved from Lexington, Massachusetts. And it had come out. And a lot of kids that I went to school with in the fourth grade were seeing it. But I didn't see it. And so I think my parents or my dad saw it. And, uh, you know, I heard some tidbits. And then, like, in the early 80s, when I was well aware of Spielberg, it played as a double feature at the drive-in. And it was the first film. And I got to watch it. So it was the only time I watched it from beginning to end. I've seen parts of it since. And I remember enjoying it, like thinking, wow, this is a lot better than I was expecting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, there's some funny slapstick and stuff. You know, there's some great set pieces, which again, Spielberg does really well. And then I've watched, like I said, big chunks of it since then. And you're watching a movie where the comedy does not work at all. In the documentary, he he says he says something like, in the end, this movie was just an excuse for me to blow shit up. Not that I appreciate this movie anymore, but I understand it more from the fact that this was a guy obsessed with war movies growing up yeah. and smashing shit up and having chaos. He's great at having a lot of stuff happen on the screen at the same time. Yeah. But for some reason, he's just not really adept at comedy and screwball comedy. Yeah. 
there's a couple things that obviously as a kid, when I first saw the film, why did I want to see it? I was also obsessed with John Belushi at the time, right. having just seen his movies. And then the guy, I, he may have been still alive when I got to see 1941. And again, he, anything with John Belushi I wanted to see. And, and some of those scenes are kind of fun. But the score by John Williams, again, is great. Yeah, It was shot by William Fraker, who did a lot of things I liked. And uh, Spielberg and him didn't get along, and oh, Fraker was fired before the end of the movie. Oh, wow. Even though he had actually photographed a lot of the special effects. And this was what's funny is that Fraker was nominated for the visual effects and the cinematography for that film. That's hilarious. Even though um, he was fired before the movie was over. Hate's a strong word, but I, I wouldn't... <laughs> I have to see the movie again, but I would say I didn't really like this movie. It's probably not one of Spielberg's best. And I'm going to say that you didn't like it either. Yeah, I don't hate it, though. And part of that is, be- is because of my experience with it. I haven't watched it a- again in a very long time. As a kid, uh, my family knew I was into movies. And so my uncle got me this book that was the making of 1941. Oh, weird. And yeah, it was very weird. And I didn't really know much about the movie. I, you know, I loved Close Encounters, but I, I didn't, I was not super aware of 1941. But he got me this book, and it was this big, like, 8 by 10 book with lots of uh, pictures about the set pieces and stuff. And so there was all this stuff about the details of how they made the house slide off the cliff and things like that. And it was really about the mechanics and the special effects of making this movie. And I loved this book and I read it over and over again. And I just thought that these set pieces were the coolest thing, but I hadn't seen the movie. And it wasn't until years later when I was in high school that I actually watched the movie. Uh, oh, fascinating. Uh, because, you know, it was on video. And so, it, you know, it came out in 79 and I probably didn't see it until 85 or 86. So you didn't even see a widescreen copy of it? No, I saw it pan and scanned. And so when I watched it, I knew all the set pieces already. And so watching it to me was sort of this... As a film-going experience, it was all about the mechanics of it for me. And so I didn't really care about the comedy working or not working or the story working or not working. I just cared about all these cool practical effects they had done. So for me, that's what the movie, that's the place it holds for me is that it was my first sort of understanding of the making of a movie. And so I almost put it in the like category because of that, even though it's not a very good movie. So I'm putting it in don't like, but, but I have a personal connection to it because it was my first introduction to behind the camera on a movie. Well, here's a couple of interesting things is that the movie, it has this chaotic feel of a Robert Zemeckis film, like yeah. I Want to Hold Your Hand. And the screenplay was from Robert Zemeckis. That's right. That's right. And Bob Gale. So like it has that stamp. And I think that it just shows you some directors can't do everything. And yeah. Spielberg does not, as we we're going to see in the next episode, he doesn't do comedy uh, well. Uh, that's just not his thing. And uh, another side, when we talk about the set pieces, shortly after I saw this, so I must have saw this uh, the summer of 82, I'm yeah. going to say, maybe 81. I went to California for the first time in uh, the winter of 83 on my like February vacation. Right. And that was like an eye-opening experience. I was like, oh my God, this is where movies are right. made. And yeah. I want to, this is where I want to go to school someday and all that. 
we had this tour of the Universal Studios tour, much different than the tour now. You know, they always update right. it and there was some stuff. And that was cha- – it was like – to me, it was it was everything I ever wanted. But we got taken into some of the, you know, part of the tour of these sound stages. They had still set up at the time as part of an exhibition. They had set up models from 1941 with oh, the Ferris wheel. Oh, cool. So I actually got to see those actual models. Yeah. So that was just an aside. But yeah, I mean, so this was Spielberg's first taste of failure. Yep. Because it really wasn't that much of a big box office bomb. It was a moderate hit, but it cost a fortune. Yes. It cost a fortune. It went over schedule. It went over budget. Yeah. As we end this episode, it's important to keep in mind in the chronology and kind of our growing up, I still did not know in 1979 who Steven Spielberg was. I didn't know he had made Jaws. Even when I finally saw Jaws, and which was like in 1979 at the drive-ins, I, I, like, I didn't look at the director. I yeah. just didn't. I didn't know that the guy who had directed Jaws was also the guy who directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind and didn't make that connection to 1941. Yeah. That was not something that me, the nine-year-old, knew. And I think that's a great place to stop because yes. we're going to be picking it up in 1981 with Raiders of the Lost Ark. When we became aware of that. And, you know, it's interesting that thinking about the age we were with these movies is that we really grew up with Spielberg. Right. These these were a big part of our childhood. And Spielberg has been with me my whole life. Yep. And that's the thing is he was he was with me when I didn't even realize he was exactly. Yeah. But in 1981, which, like I said, will be a great place to start. That's when it all changed. That's when suddenly I was keenly aware of probably for the first time who a director was other than George Lucas, because I knew him more as that's the guy who created Star Wars. Right. And then yeah. because of that, I also knew that he created American Graffiti. And so I knew who that director was. I probably knew who no other director was. Yeah, same. Yeah. Until 1981. Yeah, even 1980, when I first saw The Shining and stuff, the director, Stanley Kubrick, it went right by my head. Yeah, me too. Didn't know who he was. I just knew it was because I didn't think about movies that way. I didn't think about the people who made them and what their names were. That's just not how I was. I I think I was a little bit aware of Spielberg because of the 1941 book. That would maybe be true. And I didn't know, even though the name was probably brandied about, it was probably somewhere in my conscious, but literally it all changed with Raiders of the Lost Ark, which, so for you listeners out there who are like, oh, I'm itching to hear more. Well, you're going to hear more in the next episode (laughs) of this. And maybe the episode after that too, because we did not get very far today into the filmography. No, but yet what we did do though, is we got to talk at length about the Fablemans, much more than I thought we would ever get into on this episode. So I don't think we'll need to do that again no we won't well except where it it relates to the film filmography which I yeah think- and that's where i think we keep it's a callback which we've done and so that's why you know good on you because when we were going to do this i was like nope we're going in order and then you convinced me we should do the fablemans first and now i'm glad you did yes and this is exactly why and so as we're finishing up here i encourage people to uh see fablemans if you get a chance if it's in a theater do that uh i would have taken that opportunity opportunity had it been uh, presented to me, but I saw it on on demand and uh, I, I enjoyed it and I, I highly recommend it. It's uh, definitely one of the better movies of the year. 
look at that. We've gotten the opinion up to now. One of the better movies of the year and also highly recommend. So good. We've done a service here. Um, <laughs> and that's saying a lot for me. Well, you don't like to give away your praise easy. Yeah. Your filmmakers have to earn it. But I mean, again, I just look at the year and and some of the movies that were hits of sorts in the theaters, and it just it, it kills me. Yeah, because I recognize it. Now. I mean, the, the world is changing, the world of film, and you know, my fear, if I want to use that word, is that these experiences are going to be gone. I mean, one of the things that we don't really have, other than if you go to like maybe an IMAX theater, but by and large, unless you live in some big market that still has a big theater somewhere, the idea that you could go into this big, huge monster theater with a big monster screen and see these movies, and with maybe four or 500 people, that's largely gone. I don't know. I live in a big market and I still have that opportunity. Yeah, but not everybody does. But not everybody does, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just that experience is drifting away. Uh, Kids today don't care as much about that. Although, you know, if you look at the movies that have done well over the last year, they are... And again, I'm, I don't want to talk about Marvel, but if you look at like uh, Barbarian or Everything Everywhere All at Once, these are movies that work well with an audience. And I always say that, you know, most films, I would still, my preference will always be to see in the theater. Sure, absolutely. But some films, you know, I mean, I, I was happy that I got to see The Fablemans yeah. in the theater. I got an experience from that. However, I will be the first to admit that unlike some Spielberg movies, which are these big, like, visual audio feasts, seeing the Fablemans at home with some loved ones is fine. It, absolutely. It's it's not a big epic movie. It's much more intimate, performance-based, yeah, character-based. All right, kids, look it. I'm going to turn into a pumpkin. <laughs> I, my time has run up. So we're going to end this now. Um, you know, keep seeing stuff, people. Um, we're going to be back uh, in a week or so with... Part two of the Spielbachtagon. Yeah, which might be 20 episodes. Hope not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.